Hi, I'm Dan Schinder. And I'm Steven Schinder. And you're watching Yes Shift. A news desk report, April 14th, 2022. Yeah, well, well, kind of. Like, we have a news item we really wanted to touch upon, but after that, we'll be talking about Bill Bruford's autobiography. Yeah, he wrote it himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to uh, do a book review, basically. And in case you missed it, as this is being recorded, we had Bill Bruford on yesterday. Um, what a thrill that was, but we'll get to that in a moment. And the link is in the description of this post. Don't go there yet. Wait till after we're done with this and then click, right. go watch our interview with the amazing Dr. Bill Bruford. But Steve, oh, the situation with Alan and his, the most prized drums he's ever had. <sighs> go ahead. I'm still... Yeah, about the whole thing. Yeah, so Alan has posted about this uh, on his social media, and we've been sharing it this past couple weeks on both Yes Shift and Drum Talk TV. But for those who don't know, on March 25th, while Alan and his wife Gigi were out of town on vacation, some thieves broke into their home and they found documents that led them to their storage unit, so they were able to take more possessions and that included this uh drum kit that he played on john lennon's imagine and george harrison's all things must pass and i mean like what a terrible day like march 25th like that happens and taylor hawkins also passed away that day it's just you know it's it's heartbreaking to hear about you know you don't break into someone's home and steal their stuff from there or from like and to see this happen to such a nice guy like Alan, it's, uh, it's just... Exactly. Oops, wrong photo. Sorry, folks. Yeah, go ahead, Steve. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's it's just... It's like, whatever happened to human decency, I, I don't care how down on their luck these people are, this was uncalled for. They crossed a line. Now, in one of the news reports, um, as of yesterday, uh, I tr I looked up, like on the pages to see. Uh, so this is like the most up-to-date thing we know. So as of yesterday, they had one suspect in custody and we're- Really? I didn't two. even know that. Really? Yeah. Uh, but they said they still needed help identifying the other two. So- Well, I'm um, hoping the first knucklehead will identify the others. Yeah. And um, in the most recent post from Alan, it also describes uh, some other missing items. So the Ludwig four-piece drum set with 1960s Silver Sparkle Keystone badge um, with Plastic Ono Band logo head. Yep, that's and the one we're showing now. Ludwig Keystone badge, Chrome 5 by 14 Superphonic snare drums, uh, and says the serial number is 645778. And a Ludwig Modern Keystone badge with custom champagne sparkle. Um, it's like a goldish copper color lacquer uh, incomplete drum set. So these details are on the most recent post on Alan White's Facebook page. And there are also links to these news articles. Um, I'll go ahead and paste them in the comments uh, as we go. But uh, Dad, what's your, what are your thoughts on this whole thing? Well, 
all over the map. But my, my first thing is this. I can't imagine what these idiots thought they'd be able to do with this stuff. You can't sell it. You can't display it. What are they going to do? Set it up in their garage and jam to a record with it? Like, it just, none of it makes sense other than perhaps uh, the demented thrill of being able to get away with something. Because apparently they were squatting and, and knew that Alan and Gigi left on vacation. They were there long enough to comb through so much of their belongings, even their paperwork, that led them to the storage unit. I mean, this was like not someone just ramsacking the place. They they really were on a mission, but I don't I can't fathom what the end game is. Um and and if I sound distracted, give me one second. I want to just share this broadcast as we're live to my personal page. Great, it's not working. Um and you know, so if anyone has any ideas on that, I can't imagine what they thought they'd be able to do with it. it does that make sense, Steve? Yeah, like, I don't know if they have some, I don't know, black market connections, like some people looking for this sort of stuff. But like, I, I hope that like, if there are listings, maybe that could help people lead, like lead them to the corporates of this whole thing. Um, if anyone knows any information, you can contact the King County Sheriff's Office at, uh, and I'll paste this number in the comments as well, uh, 206-296-3311. But yeah, so, you were about to say something? Yeah. So the other thing is that as a fellow drum set owner that has some drums that really mean a lot to me, I'm one of those people that I've never sold anything I've ever had. I've never gotten rid of anything. I've had a couple things stolen, but not like a complete drum set. But I, even in my most dire times, it never even occurred to me to sell my drums and buy food or something. I've always been able to somehow make something else work. And I respect people that have had to be in that position, but I have drums that go back to when I was seven years old. I'm 59. And some of the drums I have are older than I am. I have two timpani drums that are set up with my big blue kit um, that are from 1958-59, Slingerland. We're not sure. Two pedal tune timpani drums. Um, my big blue kit has been with me through all my years of touring and recording and playing up and down the Sunset Strip through the 80s. And if that stuff were to have been stolen like this, I've seen Alan on interview since then. I would not be able to keep my composure. I hardly can now, even with what's going on with him. And I've, for folks who don't know, I've known Alan since 1989. And he's been on the show multiple times. And he's a huge, huge influence. But I, can, I would not be able to keep my composure. I barely can just thinking about my stuff disappearing like that. And that's just one of my drum sets. So I can't imagine the heartbreak he's going through to have a drum set stolen as the only person and the only drum set used for how it was used. You know, on those songs and those records, I mean, sure, there was Jim Keltner that played on both those different records, but still, that set was also used for the song Imagine 
that has transcended through pop culture, hippie culture. You know, you go to the grocery store and they're playing Imagine. You're in an elevator, they're playing Imagine. You you go to any sort of peace conference or food bank or something, and the, the crowd is singing Imagine. My wife and I have done it at an improv that we had um, year, a few years ago that we used to put on. I mean, it's just it's despicable as being way too kind. It, yeah. it really is. And, and I hope that the person they have in custody will be magnanimous enough to give the other information. I don't even care if they cut a deal with him for that. Not let them off, but cut a deal, get the other information, get these other idiots. And th- this is just, I hope Alan gets his stuff back and I hope it's unscathed and that I'd, I'd love to see him playing it again. That would be the, the, the best justice ever, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's angry. It's an angry thing. It makes me angry. And I'm sure other musicians, music fans, other drummers, even if you're not a musician, you have anything that's a prized possession, something that you've kept for decades that's meant a lot to you. Um, you could probably relate to what they might be going through. Plus just people in your home getting that deep into your stuff. I mean, ugh. I've had people break yeah, yeah. into a car and that feels violated enough, you know? Yeah. It's a total violation. It's, it's inhuman. It's, it's disrespectful. It's frustrating. It's just not good all around. Yeah. So anybody, if you can help the numbers there, Steve, put it in the comments, pin it to the top. It's yeah. available. And I know that Alan and Gigi would really appreciate um, your help on this. I just happened to email with Gigi like a couple days before then. And then to think how quickly life can change, you know? So, so see if you can help out. That's, that's all I've got left on it, I guess. Yeah. And we'll keep an eye on the situation. Uh, again, it's, it's an ever developing thing. So uh, ho- like the best way to make this episode updated would be if he gets all his stuff back in one piece, like tomorrow, you know, like I'm, I, I really hope that they're able to like get it all back and find these people. Yeah. Um, any comments before we move on to Bill's book? Um, let's see. And Steve's um, checking both the Yes Shift yeah, page and Drum Talk TV. Yeah, Brian Cahoon says the epitome of sleaze. I totally agree. It's just scummy all around. And I'm going to show um, pictures while you show these pictures again. Thanks, right. Brian, for for checking in with us. We appreciate your f- your fan fandom, your f- fanness, fanness. <laughs> right. Um, and Robert Heckman says, hello, gentlemen. Uh, hi, th- thanks for watching. Um, so, yeah, that's, yeah, so like I said, we'll keep an eye on this as it develops. Now, I know there are other, um, I, there's no easy way to segue from this, I guess, but I know there are other news items related to YES members, uh, but we'll probably get to those in a couple weeks, like sometime after Rosfest happens, so we'll have more stuff to talk about. Yeah. Um, in the meantime, um, well, again, we're talking about Bill's book. I guess we could kind of consider this news, because the news is we've been reading 
this book. It's, uh, <laughs> and we just had Bill on yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was that's still surreal. Like I'm still getting used to this reality where that actually happened. We interviewed Bill Bruford. That was fun, and Bill was wonderful. He really was. And thanks to Lindsay Jones, who helped through the process. Uh, we we really appreciate both of you so much. Thanks. Watch that interview, folks. After this, um, I guarantee you will learn some things about Bill that you've never learned before because that's what we do on yes shift and drum talk tv you absolutely will learn some new things i promise you promise yeah yeah cool i was a little disappointed um what with his book because i first of all i i thought it was gonna be a coloring book (laughs) (laughs) no this is brilliant um you know he's such a well-spoken gentleman so schooled so well-traveled so professorial he's a doctor now of musicology and reading this book has been uh, well first of all i love the peak beyond the curtain yeah it's one of the things we do on drum talk tv filming documentaries and what we do with interviews but ever since i was a kid i've loved documentaries and biographies and autobiographies that people coincidentally write themselves and i love music documentaries and things. I remember my first music documentary I ever saw was Chicago at the ranch, which was them recording at Caribou Ranch. I was like 10 or 11 when I saw this, I think. Um, So reading Bill's book and getting a peek, a complete peek behind his curtain from the very beginning all the way to him retiring. Oh, I spoiled the ending of the book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I was going to say. I was going to say we should start with general thoughts before going into spoilers. But then again, maybe <laughs> this is a retired. philosophical debate, but is it possible to spoil a nonfiction book about a guy <laughs> whose life we already pretty much know? Like there that, are, I'd say yes, it's possible because there's a lot of nuggets in there that we both learned along the way. And on that note, share one. What's something that sticks out to you? I'm just realizing I don't have my wedding rings on. I hope I didn't lose them. Um, What's something that (laughs) sticks out to you that you didn't know about Bill and his career and or the bands he's played with? Oh, well, first, I want to talk about like the way it's written. Um, So this wasn't quite how I was imagining. Like I thought it would be more linear, but it kind of jumps around. It, it kind of feels like reading, and it reminds me of essays where someone's trying to make a point about what a book they read is saying. And so they'll list the arguments, and but it's out of chronological order. It's like whatever seems important to them. And so this feels very much like Bill's own personal essay and um, it's I, I interesting. Quite... It's interesting you point that out because that's how he explained his new CD box set. It's not chronological; it's themed. So that's, right. I guess, how his brain works, which is wonderful. I love it. Yeah, though I, I would say the box set within the three sections, it is somewhat chronological. You know, first it goes the the collaborations, and then the composer, band leader. You know, that period of of that those aspects of his career and then it goes into like guests and improvisation so it is kind of chronological but yeah here he jumps around and it he does get philosophical it gets humorous or even like 
a couple things I was kind of surprised were in there. But um, yeah, it didn't have everything I was kind of expecting. Like I thought maybe it would go deeper into how certain songs were made and whatnot. But then again, maybe I would expect that more from a biography as opposed to an autobiography. You know, someone who's a fan of the band will dig into all this, interview them about how this got made. Yeah, that's a different book for sure. Yeah, but yeah, I totally respect that he wrote everything that he felt was important to say in here. Like that's that's something I've always admired about him. He, He feels like he says the things that feel important to the matter. Right. And those four themes, by the way, are not chronological because he did session work, band leading and all those things intermingled the whole way through his career. So I don't take those four themes as chronological at all. Just a little side right. note, my own five cents that you didn't ask for. But what? <laughs> what yeah, f- five cents for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> What's a couple nuggets that, that you learned that you were totally unaware of? And that surprised you? Um, One thing, well, this is like early on when he's talking about the early period with Yes. And, you know, there's that period we've heard about where he left the band for a little bit in 1968 to go back to school. And they had Tony O'Reilly fill in as the drummer. Right. Um, And I was surprised to hear that uh, in Bill's words, Tony was kind of hitting the sauce, so I guess drinking a yes. bit. And the playing wasn't up to what was kind of subpar because of that. And so for that reason, Bill uh, felt like he needed to come back. And I kind of get that. He like saved as, his band. Yeah. And like as um, someone who like whenever I see typos sometimes i sometimes think to myself oh my gosh just let me edit and fix this type of thing (laughs) and so i kind of get that and it was an interesting anecdote because we don't really know that much about tony o'reilly you know right we only know that in fact at least that's all i know any other interesting surprise nuggets that made you go whoa or huh um, there are various things I wanted to point out. I'm just not sure like what order to go in and if you had something you wanted to leave yeah. off with as well. But, I'll throw yeah. one out and and we could take turns doing that in any order. Yeah. One of the things that actually shocked me, this is kind of a spoiler, but one of the things that actually shocked me was how little money they were making during the first two or three albums. I don't know what you folks think, because we all think of it. It's yes, for God's sake, you know, <laughs> and they arrived in 1968 and 69 and 70. They put out these amazing, iconic albums with iconic songs that encapsulated a culture. And uh, we can go on and on and on. And I don't know what you people think, but they were making like 25 pounds a week. Let yeah. me repeat that. 25 <laughs> pounds a week. And eventually they made 50 pounds. And they were having some things taken care of, like their household bills and things. But still, they were making 25 to 50 pounds a week in those early years. And that's that just I had to read that a few times and let that sink in. Yeah. On the topic of money, uh, this actually segues nicely. When he talks about the time when he left the band after Close to the Edge, 
I didn't, I'm not sure that I knew he ended up having to pay like a fee to sort of like let himself out of the band and he donated half of his whatever he made for Close to the Edge to Alan who'd be touring yeah, with them. Yeah, the royalties, yeah. That, what other musician would do that? <laughs> that says a lot about him as a man, as a person. It really does. That's that's the definition of magnanimous to a degree and generous, you know, and thoughtful. I mean, he certainly didn't have to do that. Yeah, but also he felt like if he had to leave, yes, the time was now because he really didn't want to play close to the edge on tour. Like he's talked about the frustration of making that album and yeah. how he felt like he's contributed all he could to yes. And so uh, that's another thing I admire about him is he knew when he felt like um, he wouldn't be all in with it. And that's something that's sometimes in the back of my mind with certain things I've had to do where I felt like, you know, I feel like I can't keep on doing this because my heart isn't in it. And I'll like, I'm not always thinking of Bill's decisions of making every single one of my decisions, but it's just one of those things um, I remember about like all the stories he tells that makes me think, you know what, I should approach it a similar way. Like if I'm not fully into it, then I should be honest about it with myself and with the people involved. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, that was a neat nugget. Um, Another one that I found funny was, and these are spoilers, I guess, but yeah, we're we're just in spoiler territory now. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. but still read the book. It'll hit, hit you differently when you read it from Bill's words rather than yeah. our translation of it. But when he talked about how ABWH came together, and it's in the book, and we talked about it in the interview as well, and how he thought he was going to play on a John Anderson solo album, and he yeah. showed up at the <laughs> airport, and Rick was there, and Steve was there, and he... Like, oh, and then it just kind of started to feel like a band, and so away they went. Um, I thought that was kind of funny, actually. Yeah, I'd heard that story before, and yeah, it really was something that seemed like it would be a John solo album. And some people, even today, still argue, well, it's more like a John solo album than like a Yes album. Uh, Really? Oh, wow. I've never, that's never occurred to me. Yeah, in my perception of the album, I always thought it was what most people know it as ABWH. And right, I, I, I didn't ask him this because I didn't want to be want to come off as disrespect. I didn't want this question to come off the wrong way. So, Bill, if you're watching this, maybe you can email me and let us know. Like, why not include L for Levin? Oh yeah, that's you know, because yeah. it's not like Tony was some unknown. You know, he'd play. He's the only person that's played on every Peter Gabriel album. He played years with Bill with King Crimson, so I found that interesting that they did not use his name. Um, Amber, Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, Howe, and Levin. I mean, that still has a ring to it. Yeah, it's I, another I mean, it, word in two more syllables. But. Yeah, it's a longer title, so maybe they could have come up with a different name as opposed to just their last Oh, like name. ABWHL? That's shorter. 
Yeah, I guess I could have done that. Like, yeah. just had that on the album cover instead of the whole thing. Yeah, I don't know. That's just my own thing because I think being that most of the music was already written, as Bill says, and that was the biggest difference between the process of creativity and production between Close to the Edge and this new old lineup, a new project for this old lineup, he said is that the, the material was already there and all we had to do was embellish on it. Well, Tony embellished on it, you know? So yeah. I just, I'm not saying I take issue with it. Maybe that's how the tone of my voice sounds. I don't intend for that to be uh, what I'm putting forth. I, it's a curiosity thing for me. And I'm a huge Tony right. Levin fan too. Yeah, Tony is very professional. Um, I'll look. I'll kind of recite a little anecdote about him in here. But first, I want to bring up um, what was said about him in uh, Steve Howe's autobiography, All My Yesterdays. Yeah, Steve didn't like him. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, qu quite the opposite. Yeah. Like when he was recounting the when Steve was recounting the ABWH days, he talked about how. You know, they asked Tony if he could play the songs. He was like, yeah, I can do that. And like working with Tony Levin kind of was, it was sort of a light bulb moment for Steve. Because, you know, in the 70s, the Yes members were kind of doing things differently. And there would be like this whole thing about, oh, he's like, you know, Chris would be late and whatnot. But with Tony, like it was a sort of... um you know, the way that Tony worked with them, it, like it was the sort of type of professionalism that Steve Howe wanted Yes to be on par with when he came back to the band in the later years onward and sort of like set these roles like, OK, we have to do this. And, and then he and wanted to carry really... that that ethic forward. Yeah. And there were like mixed results, like not everyone would listen to it, but that's. You know, the Tony Levin left quite an impression. Like, it's quite a, quite a compliment, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead and yeah. read that. Oh yeah. So the other thing um, that's in Bill's book, uh, he talked about a gig, like a King Crimson gig at Oxford Polytechnic, uh, where the audience seemed to be enjoying it as much as a dose of salts. So I guess like not very much or whatever. And Tony Levin would come over to Bill during the set and he'd say stuff like, whose funeral is it? Uh, or stick to the charts, uh, even though they didn't have any written music <laughs> out. Um, and yeah, stick it's just, charts. yeah, just well-humored guy, Tony Levin. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, if, if anyone out there watching this, even if you're not a King Crimson fan in the way that uh, you're just not real familiar with their music, one of my favorite things is the film that they did in Tokyo for the Three of a Perfect Pair tour. Um, I saw that tour at the Greek in LA. I'll never forget that. It was the only show I ever saw where it was outdoors and it was not hot. And it was like misty and slightly sprinkling here and there. And it was just such a neat environment and vibe. But that film for that tour is great. There's a few behind the scenes things, but the performances are what I would consider impeccable um, as a receiver of the music. And Adrian Ballou 
doing the drum duet with Bill on the Simmons drums facing each other. And then Adrian also playing on a four piece kit next to Bill, some part, I mean, it, the musicality of those four people is just off the charts. Tony mostly playing the stick, but from time to time playing a music man, jazz bass and a synthesizer. And it's just great. It's, it's a great introduction to the, it's a good place to start, I think. Um, and it's got all the classic songs of that lineup, and I just love it. It's great. Yeah, and Bill talks in this book about um, again. This book came out in two thousand nine, but the uh, the one I have is from twenty thirteen. I think it even includes a nice forward from Mike Portnoy calling Bill the Godfather of progressive drumming. You know, the prog father. So uh, that, that's a nice thing there. But uh, in terms of King Crimson. Bill talks about how he was pretty much, you know, he would kind of stalk the band. Um, he, he was like really yearning to play with them for a while because he didn't want Yes to be the only thing he did. And he was really gravitating toward the more mysterious feel of King Crimson. And uh, he, he uses this metaphor about how like when he finally joined, he was like a ripening tomato, which I thought was a funny metaphor because you know with yes and tormato and he even <laughs> says later on that, maybe he threw it yeah maybe <laughs> uh, he, he even uh says later on that um tales from topographic oceans is kind of ridiculous but infinitely better than tormato and i was like wow that's very off the wall like i i disagree with the infinitely part but yeah yeah it's <laughs> yeah i can see comments and uh, Robert Heckman says, I got stuck in an elevator with Tony Levin on board cruise to the edge in 2018 uh, for oh, about wow. five minutes till they restored power. No panic from either of us. Stick men were on that cruise. <laughs> that's a funny story. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great person to be stuck in an elevator with. So what would um, you ask him if you were stuck with, with uh, Tony? What would you ask him if you had five minutes with him? Oh, yeah, I'd probably ask him about, again, this is probably going to sound really basic because I'm not as in-depth with Peter Gabriel stuff or with King Crimson stuff, but I would definitely ask him about ABWH and what that was like and what Union was like, you know, working with the session musicians and how weird of a time it might have been. Like, I'd probably ask him about that era. I would... Um... Bear with me. I'm gonna I'm gonna show you what I would ask him, and that's a good question. Uh, and I see a comment from Terry Poa Gwen who says, "Great interview, you guys. As always, great job with Bill." Thank you. Is that the Terry I went to school with? Is that on Drum Talk TV? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I hi Terry. How's it going? Uh, check out Drummature. He makes furniture out of drums. So I would show. Tony that picture and say, how do you play that fucking thing? <laughs> you know, the interesting thing about the stick is it's a 10 string instrument and the fat strings are in the middle. So it's not like linear in the sense of a piano where it goes from low register to high or a guitar from low to high. The fat strings are in the middle and you play <laughs> out what, what? Like there's no other training for that. You know, I find that interesting. Um, 
But uh, thanks for sharing that story, Robert. That's great. Any other comments on Trump Talk TV? Um, yeah, so I see Brian said something about the audio. I'm just uh, replying oh. about that. But Okay. Is the audio uh, okay? Am I too loud? Uh, well, it says the video not in sync with the audio, but I'm wondering if this is one of those cases where refreshing helps it catch Yeah, up. that's not us. That's on your end. We're not responsible for your cable company or the satellite they're bouncing off of. <laughs> I promise you that we're talking synced with our own lips. <laughs> now go right, watch but, a Godzilla movie. <laughs> um, right, but but anyway, um, back to Tails. Another thing I thought was funny is how Bill is kind of unintentionally responsible for the theme of Tails. Um. Like, you know, Bill had, he talks about his wedding and how he invited John Anderson and Jamie yeah. Muir from King Crimson. And uh, Jamie gave John this book, that uh, autobiography of a yogi, which ended up being the inspiration for Tales. And, well, the theme of it anyway. I'm sure that the music would have still come about in some form or another. But it's just kind of funny how because of that... Because of that wedding, that theme came about. And uh, then when Rewear came around, Bill was like, now I like a theme more than, any, or I like a good theme, but this is getting ridiculous. Because, you know, <laughs> no War and Peace inspiration with uh, Gates of Delirium, just relying on that sort of stuff, I guess. Yeah. Um, okay, is, so. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, Brian Cahoon said nope uh, in terms of if refreshing works, but um, ho like at the very least, hopefully the conversation is coming in clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say, um, w speaking of Relayer, uh, brought up Patrick Moraz in my mind, and we spent some time talking about the work that Bill did with Patrick uh, with the music for piano and drums, those two albums. And I saw that show at the Beverly in Los Angeles when it came out. And that that is superb. That is some really wonderful music. Um, I highly recommend getting those albums by Patrick and Bill. Um, that's neat. And that that's one of my favorite trivia questions. One of my favorite yes trivia questions, I'll just, since I gave the answer already, I might as well ask the question is, um, and I remember throwing this out to you, Steve, for the first time years ago, is who are two Yes band members that recorded a couple albums together who never played in Yes together, but they were both members of Yes? And the answer is Bill Bruford and Patrick Moraz. Trevor Rabin has played on Rick Wakeman's Return to the Center of the Earth, but they didn't. that wasn't a collaboration. Trevor was a right. guest. They played yeah, like on, they weren't on equal footing. Right. And they, they played on Union, but they didn't compose together. They were in two separate bands, essentially, that ended up on the same album. They performed together. But this is truly the only that I know of. Um, yes, member alumni collaboration where they were not in Yes at the same time, but they created and recorded together, which I think is great. Other than maybe Oliver and Steve Howe could qualify Oh, yeah, Three Ages no, of Magic. Yeah, but they were in Yes Together, so that doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, it was before they were in Yes Together. So. Oh, okay. Um, but, yeah, like, going back to Patrick, I thought it was uh, it was cool reading about how 
you know, Bill needed a bassist for his own band, Bruford. Um, and I'll get back to UK in a moment, but Bruford, um, it, like, he wasn't sure who to get. And then Patrick was like, oh, I know the guy. Because I guess Jeff Berlin worked on one of Patrick's albums. And Bill talks about how he traveled to, I think it was New York, to visit Jeff Berlin. And I think his parents were there. And so there was, like, a lot of pasta at the dinner table. And I guess, like, the way he recounts the conversation, it makes it seem like the parents were perplexed about why he would want to recruit Jeff, it's because it's like, have, aren't you rich from yes? Or like, why do you want Jeff? Like, and he was like, in hindsight, it probably was unusual with the office being like 3000 miles away or whatever, because, you know, he's based in England and this was New York. Um, yeah. So but, here's a, here's a yeah. Jeff Berlin anecdote for you. I don't know if I ever told you this, but when I saw ABWH, I saw them in San Diego and Tony was not with them. Tony had contracted hepatitis and had to sit out some gigs. So Bill called on Jeff Berlin to fill in. So after the show, I met Jeff having played with ABWH at that show. Oh, yeah. An obvious yeah. fill in someone else that's played with the drummer, you know. Yeah. And yeah, it's good that he knew all these people that, you know, Bill had all these connections with people he knew he could play well with. So that was pretty slick and, of them to and, get and you, Yeah, you're right. But you know what? It's more than the connections. It's just like any other business. It's really all about the relationships. Yeah. That's really what yeah. it comes down to. Yeah. yeah. And Terry uh, chiming in again says, named my son after Trevor Rabin. That's really cool. Oh, wow. Cool. So his name is Trevor Rabinowitz? <laughs> Right. So um, the thing I want to say about UK, I thought it was interesting how they were basically in two camps. Like the way Bill describes it is John Wetton and Eddie Jobson wanted to go more commercial, whereas he and Alan Holdsworth didn't. And so they were much uh, more fusion-esque. If you yeah, listen to that first album. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in hindsight, we know what happened later. You know, John Wetton went with Asia, which had very commercial yeah. music. And Eddie Jobson was in the Owner of Only Heart music video, kind of not really. <laughs> <laughs> I love, love that first. I love both UK albums, but the one, the first one with Bill and Alan, I just love that. My, do you listen to that much? Do you bring it back up? Um, I, after listening to all the tracks that are on the box set, I really want to get back into it because well, I told you this before off air, but that song Nevermore, it has such a nice, that's my favorite. Not, yeah. It has such a nighttime feel and it's great. Like it's, I'm constantly amazed by how musicians are able to make certain songs sound like nighttime and it's like how they do that like what is it is it just is That's it the lyrics is it the music is it a combination it's i, I yeah, think it's, it's partly your sensibilities too but but that right. song is my favorite song because that song's a musical journey um the 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 way it starts out with first the classical guitar and then yeah, it goes just, through different changes yeah yeah some pad ethereal keyboards and John singing and then the drums come in and they break into the thing. And then there's that killer jam with Bill playing that offbeat that I just love playing. It's a great song. It's a great album. 
Uh, the production's great. If you're not familiar, folks, with that first UK album, check that out. They are all in great form. Yeah. And uh, this next thing I'm bringing up is kind of relevant to some of the, um, you know, the topics that we're going through. Like we talked about Beginnings, which Bill was on, you know, Steve Howe's album. And he's also on Fish Out of Water, which we'll talk about probably next month. Um, but that period where he was a he was a session musician, it was like between bands trying to figure out what to do in between. And he talked about how in that period he was very thankful for Dave Stewart, you know, the stuff that he did with him and also Phil Collins. And he talks about the Genesis gig and how it was kind of interesting how he felt like the music didn't really like it's not really his type of music what he was doing like it didn't lend to his style right yeah like like genesis wasn't for him so he kind of felt like a bit of a a, like a he said fraudulent like just playing the music having to like do it and sometimes he would kind of um he would have like a little mini argument with band members or i don't know if arguments right or maybe debate or whatever and he talks about how, like, I don't know, maybe subconsciously I was trying to make my departure from the band come earlier. But in any case, the tour uh, ended, like, pretty soon and he, it was done. And he said that how polite they were made him feel kind of bad about how he would, like, <laughs> debate. <laughs> and I thought that was interesting, especially after hearing about, um, like, in this book and in our interview about how when... He's a session musician on an album and he does have to tour with a person. He's just fine doing what they want. But I guess it's a different beast if he's touring with a yeah. band and having to. Yeah, he his contributions, though, uh, to that tour were great. Some of it is on Seconds Out, which also features the following year tour with Chester playing second drums. But uh, one of my favorite things to play to, and you've seen me do it on Drum Talk TV a few times, is the 1975 or 6 version. It's a bootleg of that live lineup with Bill on drums playing the entire um, version of Cinema Show. And I love playing to that version with Bill on drums. It's great. Right. And, yeah. and like if you didn't know, if you know Bill's playing at all, if you didn't know he was on it, as soon as you hear the playing, you know it's him because of the sound of the snare drum. It's just so signature. Yeah, definitely is. Um, yeah, I have like a couple other things I want to bring up. Was there anything you want to bring up? No, I'm good. I, I just, I can't say enough how much I really loved that personal, you know, the way it's written as well. It's like he's talking to you. And I know that's what an autobiography is, but... You know, I hear his voice as I'm reading it, and there's there's a lot of surprising things in there. It's really great. You folks got to get it, even if you're not a drummer. Um, I'm not an actor, but I loved Charlie Chaplin's autobiography. You know, <laughs> it's just follow your interests and get that peek beyond the curtain. You'll learn a lot. Yeah. Uh, one thing I thought was funny was... Um... At the top of page 162, he says, Oh, yeah. Despite an uneasy feeling that we already have too much music, I've continued to create it and it all needs naming. And I, I had to like be like, Wait, 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 wait. 
we the world has too much music like that doesn't register for me it's like i'm always excited that people are always making new music it's yeah it was but just I like think, a funny thing yeah i i think what he means is there's no way to take it all in oh for like one to consume all of it yeah yeah it's like, uh, I mean, that, that is something you kind of accept, not just with music, but with movies and TV shows and yeah. books. Yeah. It just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. And it's in some ways ever evolving and in other ways it's not at all. Right. Um, I mentioned to Bill in the interview about a page that really hit me over the head and across the face. Uh, page 108 talks about how Prague just kind of had run its course and things were changing. And that was my life in the early eighties. I was in a progressive rock band called Opus One. We're based in Los Angeles. We played all up and down the Sunset Strip, played all the venues. And we were prog rock playing with Motley Crue, playing with Rat, playing with Poison. And it like, it just didn't fit. We didn't do the hairspray stuff. We didn't wear spandex and we didn't fit in and we didn't get a record deal. Because that's not what was happening then. We were like, like Bill says, he says, you're just born in the wrong year. There's nothing you can do about that. <laughs> and it's it's true. We And we were, I don't know if snobby is the word, but we were um, stuck to our principles. That this is what we want to play and we're going to play it. But the world was changing musically. And especially in America, prog rock was quite frankly evaporating. And I moved from that to one more rock band, I think. And then I got into just doing session work and producing commercials, voiceovers for commercials, music for commercials, recording music for, I just totally got out of the whole band thing after that. Right. Yeah. Um, and like, there are a couple other great things in here. Like he, he kind of like summarizes what was like, um, having to do many phone interviews and get asked the same questions over and over. Like yeah. what was Robert Fripp like? Um, and, <laughs> but yeah, and this book, um, uh, again, like spoiler for the ending, like ends with his retirement oh. and the reasoning for it. Um, and it even includes a press release for it and how he says it's been an exciting four decades, but now it's someone else's turn. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. Like you think about, you know, he, he, I guess he wanted to let other people have a chance like it's not just gonna be one person who'd be on the stage instead of him like there are many venues and different shows that different people could be in his place so it's not just one person and there's more of a role than a replacement seat he, yeah like he's done like all the made a lot of jazz compositions and done all this rock and it's like he felt perfectly fine and it's kind of an act of rebellion in itself. Like we think about, you know, people join the rock world or even jazz, like becoming a musician is kind of equated with being a rebel sometimes. Yeah. And we've seen how rock stars have kept on going, even like when they're high up there in age and if they can do it, like more power to them. But it kind of felt like Bill didn't want to be uh, in that position, like he felt fine, just you know, stopping there. Just like with yes, he knew when it was right. time to get out, and went on to get a doctorate in musicology, and that's what he does now. Yeah, yeah. he's. I guess he leaves us wanting more, but like 
Yeah, it's it's understandable. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, like, you know, it's, read the book if you haven't already. And like, there's always like new stuff we're learning about Bill and all these different people. Um, I just like read an interview someone wrote up with him recently. Uh, it's on thestrangebrew.co.uk. Uh, they should have really called it the Strange Bruford, but <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, one thing and one highlight in that is how he talked about early on. Yes, we're trying to be a prog rock band, but hadn't really solidified it until Heart of the Sunrise, which is an interesting way of looking at it. Um, That's interesting. Um, that that would be the song that he was that the one you would think like if he said hey what song do you think is the song that we realized we were would you think it's that song or something else it's definitely very proggy so i can see it qualifies no doubt i'm not arguing that it doesn't qualify but for some reason i go to close to the edge first in my head but For close to the edge came after, so I'm wondering if yeah. if there's a time context there. Yeah, true. Because but... um, to me, long distance run around into the fish, you know, the fish just goes off into outer space. For most yeah. people who had never heard some long drawn out instrumental thing with six bass parts, and but Heart of the Sunrise obviously qualifies. Yeah, I think that might have been the first one they worked on for Fragile. So maybe it was oh, yeah, nice. that early. But that or five yeah. percent for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um and, and again, I'm I'm glad he's like active, like posting things on his YouTube channel. Just the last couple yeah. of weeks he's posted a few well, things. Well, from... we could thank Lindsay Jones again for that. Because Lindsay's doing that. But yeah, right. Yeah, I know what you mean. I just wanted to give Lindsay some credit. No, yeah, of course. Like, they're both, like, very active with all that. But, yeah, yeah these last couple of weeks, uh, he's posted uh, three videos from the band Bruford at Rock Goes to College back in, I think it's 1977. Uh, so there's Sample and Hold, Beelzebub, and the Sahara of Snow. And in one of these videos, the guest announcer guy, Pete Drummond, he gets a cream pie to his face at the start. <laughs> it's Yeah. <laughs> nice. You know... Ah, I feel bad I didn't tell Bill this. We'll do it next time. Um, the fact that Heart of the Sunrise is your Rockabye Baby song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for those of you who haven't heard it on the show before, when Steve was an infant, like a baby baby, um, his mom worked nights and I worked out of the house uh, for a period of time and I watched the kids. And... I would sit, the lullaby I sung or, or played for Steve was Heart of the Sunrise. Hold him in my arms. Love comes to you and you follow. So he grew up with yes from the very beginning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, well, I think I've I've exhausted all I had to share about What's this. one word you would give for the book review? What's your, not a grade, but if you could give one word. Uh, Bruford, like it's it's very that works. Bruford. <laughs> um. Oh, another thing that's someone else said. Um, when I shared that I got this book, oh, I can't remember who said this, but uh, someone in one of the groups was saying you, the title it, for someone so creative, the title is kind of 
generic, you know, it's Bill Bruford, the autobiography, yes, King Crimson, Earthworks, and more. And so um, this person suggested maybe it could have been called Bill Bruford, one of a kind. And I was like, yeah, he is one of a kind, but it doesn't sound very humble. And so he was like, okay, then maybe Bill Bruford feels good to me, you know, his first Bruford album. So I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Mine would be Omni Bruford because he really touched on so many different things and not just like I was born and then, you know, just like you pointed out, it wasn't completely linear from yeah. birth to leaving the music yeah. industry as a performer. Yeah. Steve Howe's autobiography is more linear. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thanks everybody so much for joining us again, please. Any information you have that can help with Alan's drums, uh, that would be awesome. The number for that sheriff's department in King County in Washington is pinned to the top of the comments. Thank you for following what we do. If you have comments or suggestions, we do take suggestions for episodes. You can write us at yesshiftpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're more into the podcast thing and you saw this on Facebook or part of it or the end of it or whatever, you can check out the audio version and not have to look at us. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, not not have to look at the out of sync stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can watch it or listen on anchor.fm slash yes shift. (laughs) Yeah, it took me a bit to figure out what you were doing. (laughs) Hopefully, Brian Cahoon, that didn't drive you nuts, but we do appreciate the feedback. Thanks. Um, right. Anything else, Steve? I think we're good. Yeah. Um, and I think um, on Saturday, unless anything changes, uh, we'll be talking about our overall thoughts on the book, Yes, in the 1980s. And then on the 21st, we'll uh, be talking to Stephen Lamb and Dave Watkinson, you know, the guys whose names are on the, the book. authors. So, yeah. So yeah. we'll. Um, yeah, we'll post the times. Uh, I have them written down, but I just don't have them off the top of my head. I do. <laughs> I do. It's uh, They're going to be with us at 1 o'clock Pacific time, U.S., which would be 4 p.m. Pacific. And this is on Thursday, April 21st. Yeah, and the Yes in the 80s uh, book review with just the two of us will be on... Uh, yeah, Saturday the 16th at 4 p.m. Pacific. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Another really great book. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, everybody, so much. We will see you soon. Thanks for following what we do on Yes Shift and Drum Talk TV if you're seeing it there. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Bye-bye.